And the family didn't talk very much about her because they weren't very proud of her. But she she took her sister's husband away from her sister. And they uh, went out, I think it was probably Arkansas or somewhere, to live. And we never saw her again. But she was definitely supposed to be a spy. But on her way down there, she seed him. And when she did, he was standing there. She turned around, went home, and told the children that their pap was dead. And a few days later, the letter came that told that he had died right about that hour that she seen him on the way down to the rolling house. And so uh, they always said that uh, when somebody close to you that you love a whole lot dies, that you'll see them if they're not near you. There were 13 men and boys killed and of course Colonel Lawrence Allen it, it's, uh, it's still debated whether he was actually present during the killing some people say that he was some testimony indicates that he was but I think it's fairly clear that uh, that James Keith was there and Keith was later tried and uh, his trial went on he was uh, incarcerated for over two years while his uh, defense and the prosecution was developed. And just before his prosecution went to court, uh, he escaped from jail and uh, was not seen of again. By the time I'm writing, it is all just sort of in my mind, and uh, I can't call where I first came up with secesh, but it was, it was a fairly common term, I thought. I liked homegrown Yankees. I, I, I thought that was a pretty good one. Yeah, the, uh, my Uncle Wayne had a saying, if, if somebody was being kind of snarly and difficult, he'd say, oh, that sesh is coming out in him. And that's exactly what he was talking about. Yeah. Southern Songs and Stories is part of the podcast lineup of both Public Radio WNCW and Osiris Media. Osiris creates music podcasts and events to help music fans deepen their connection to the music they love with all of their shows at OsirisPod.com. Osiris works in partnership with Jam Bass, which connects music fans to the music they love and empowers them to go see live music. Capsule versions of Southern Songs and Stories are produced for broadcast on WNCW by me, Corey Askew. More information about this and other podcasts from Grassroots Radio, WNCW, at WNCW.org. Welcome to Southern Songs and Stories. I'm your host, Joe Kendrick, and this is the second of two episodes on the Shelton Laurel Massacre. You heard our guests in the show intro, and I spoke with three of them in person for this episode, Taylor Barnhill, Vicki Lane, and Sheila K. Adams. Two more voices you heard were Peggy Dodderer and Bobby McMillan, captured over 30 years ago on the live radio show called Over Home. In part two of this two-podcast series, you get to hear some surprising facts about the Shelton Laurel Massacre and related events. 
which is still surprising to many people just considering the events of that one day's tragedy by themselves. Even once you get past the shocking nature of the executions, there are a lot of ironies and unexpected twists to the story. Learning that the animosity between neighbors and family in Madison County and the region around it smoldered for over a century before reigniting into violence in 1976 was one such surprise. Another was the story of Nancy Shelton Norton Franklin, or Nance Franklin, a valued Union spy who was reported to have commanded Union troops in the area, who witnessed three of her sons killed by Confederate troops in 1864, only narrowly escaping the same fate herself. The whole region was a hotbed of conflict that, at least on paper, did not seem to make much sense. Perhaps these pieces can only fit together once you begin by acknowledging that wars never make much sense, especially to the people fighting them. Maybe the only logical answer to the insanity that was the Civil War in southern Appalachia was to go off the rails county by county, mountain valley by mountaintop, town by countryside, and kinfolk by kinfolk. The events of Shelton Laurel in 1863 were the Civil War in microcosm, with two sides not hundreds or thousands of miles away in distance, experience, and worldview, but with those fighting each other living in the same place, with the same bloodlines, the same heritage. The irony that both sides of the Civil War were singing and playing many of the same songs comes into sharp focus here because Appalachia was always so musically inclined and adapted or created so much of what we now refer to as the American Songbook. Part one of our podcast ended with one such song, Sheila K. Adams' rendition of the medley 8th of January, Cumberland Gap, 8th day of January. And we began this episode with another, Republican Spirit, Mississippi Sawyer, played by Jim Taylor from his album, The Civil War Collection. Republican Spirit is also known as Missouri Hornpipe and Folding Down the Sheets, and was widely known above and below the Mason-Dixon line at the time of the Civil War. Coming up, we get back to more details on the massacre itself, as well as another big surprise that Vicki Lane, Sheila K. Adams, and Taylor Barnhill dropped on me in our interview, plus a theory on how the seeds of this terrible event were sown. And I learned a new word along the way, too, secesh which is short for secessionist. And here is the song, The Secesh, by John Hartford, from the compilation Songs of the Civil War. I put my knapsack on my back, my rifle on my shoulder. I'm going away to Shiloh, and there I'll be a soldier. Here's Bobby McMillan, followed by Sheila K. Adams and Taylor Barnhill from the show Over Home. Here are the 13 names. James Shelton, age 40. David Shelton, age 12. James Shelton, Jr., age 14. 
David Shelton, age 65, William Shelton, age 40, Azra R. Shelton, age 22, Rod Shelton, age 24, James Madcap, age 28, Helen Moore, age 26, Elson King, age 22, Joseph Woods, age 24, Jasper Chandler, age 30, Wade Moore, age 31. Now, according to history, I don't think there were more than three of them in the salt deal. They went through a mock burial there where they killed them, leaving some with their shoes sticking out and some with their hair sticking out. And Aunt Judy Shelton and some boys took them up and took far shovels and buried them. Keith's men and Allen's men had rounded up the 15 um, victims, is what they became, or at least 13 of them did. And as was mentioned, uh, two of them escaped, uh, Pete McCoy being one and uh, little Johnny Norton being one. The other 13 were uh, kept there for in this building for a couple of days under guard, and... Um, then they were told to gather their stuff up, and they were being taken over to Knoxville, Tennessee, for trial. And they'd only marched down the road for a couple of miles when Keith told them to stop and uh, then ordered five of them to kneel. And one of them, old man David Shelton, refused to kneel and told him that he didn't kneel to devils, he only kneeled to his Lord, and they shot him in the stomach, and he fell to the ground and was begging them to shoot him and put him out of his misery, and one of the Confederate soldiers shot him in the head. But what happened right before that was when Keith gave the order to fire at these five, the soldiers hesitated. None of them wanted to be responsible for actually firing the first shots, and then after those five were moved over to the side of the road, Keith ordered the next five to kneel. And the little 12-year-old boy uh, was one of these five. And he had, uh, Rena Shelton said that he had uh, long curly hair and that he begged the uh, soldier who was standing in front of him not to shoot him in the head or in the face because it would upset his mother. And... Uh, but he did go ahead and shoot him through the head. And he also, well, he crippled him first. And the uh, boy begged him, since he was crippled, to let him just go on home to his mother because she had lost all of her other sons and her husband in the war up to that point, and he was all she had left. But they shot him in the head and killed him. One of the soldiers uh, later on cut a curl off from this little boy, and eventually his mother got a lock of his hair. Um, then the other three were told to kneel, and they also shot them through the head. And it, they dug a shallow grave and threw all 13 in the mass grave together and covered them over with loose dirt and leaves. And one of the Confederate soldiers, they're not sure exactly why, it was probably just what usually happens in a case like that. You kind of go crazy. Uh, jumped up and down on the grave and hollered out for somebody to pat Juba for him, and he'd dance their souls into hell. And that was the Shelton Law Massacre. 
There were 13 men and boys killed. And, of course, Colonel Lawrence Allen, it, it's, uh, it's still debated whether he was actually present during the killing. Some people say that he was. Some testimony indicates that he was. But I think it's fairly clear that, uh, that James Keith was there. And Keith was later tried, and uh, his trial went on. He was uh, incarcerated for over two years while his uh, defense and the prosecution was developed. And just before his prosecution went to court, uh, he escaped from jail and uh, was not seen of again. It is hard to hear that story. Hard to imagine what it took for the soldiers to pull the trigger on people they knew. What it took to ignore the pleas of a 12-year-old boy. But isn't it harder to imagine what drove these people to hate each other that much in the first place? This was a war, sure, and hatred and war are often linked. But this was more than that. It was personal. Next, we get to Sheila K. Adams' take on where that originated, followed by more of our conversation with Sheila, Vicki, and Taylor following this tune, Cheyenne, from Bard Ray, a song that may go back to the Battle of Shiloh in the Civil War, which was also referenced in The Secesh, which was played earlier. first time that I went to the border country between Scotland and England, I was amazed at how many of our names mm. are on, you know, in, in all the phone books, because I would sit there and look down through the Adamses and look down through the Nortons and the Chandlers, and it was just like being at home. There was just as many of them there. But the one thing about the borderland Scots that wound up coming here were that they lived in a in a society that was totally it was moving all the time because they were into it with the English then they would get into it with the Highland Scots and they were trapped in the center and so I think that when mama said violence begets violence I think that's what she was talking about because most of the settlers that came to this part of the world came over here in the 1700s not during the potato famine but they came out of England because they were, you know, anti-Baptists and Baptists and Methodists. And, and so I think it's because they started out generations ago being violent. Well, you know, there's studies that show that trauma can affect your DNA, and then that will get passed down through the generation. So it goes back to Proverbs that, you know, what... what, what 
the sins of the father, I guess you could say. Upon seven generations, yeah. But it's but I think that I think that's um, a big part of why, and and they're still that way. Um, my uncle Ward said they used to just square off. You know, they'd meet up in the road, and one of them would say, "Are you still of the same mind you was last time I saw you?" And knifings and guns and every, you know, I mean, knives, guns, all sorts of stuff would come out. Um, and they would just fight it out right there in the middle of the road. He said, and, and my great uncle Ross said, yeah, me and Bob had some of our bestest times back during them <laughs> days. I'm curious about the, what was going on in Tennessee with the, the rest of the state uh, how they dealt with a unionist section in the in the mountains. I think there was talk of East Tennessee seceding and being there, just like West Virginia uh, seceded from Virginia because of differences of whether to be unionist or not. Uh, but that obviously did not happen. And it previously had uh, created the state of Franklin, which took up part of East Tennessee. That was long prior to the Civil War, yeah. but those feelings were still around. Now the Rumbo family that uh, came over from Greenville and settled in what was known as Warm Springs, now Hot Springs, had strong feelings and they say uh, Colonel Rumbo moved to Warm Springs to get out of the, the thick of it. He thought he was pretty pretty isolated. But his daughter Lucy was known as a spy and the oral tradition says that she was the one that gave away the location of Colonel Morgan um, his wife Carrie is that right Carrie uh, when the when the Yankees were coming in from Greenville up the Buncombe Turnpike old Drover's Road uh, she went out and burned the bridge so they couldn't get over there and steal the horses of the Rumbo family and uh, so there was incredibly mixed allegiances. And a lot of it had to do with survival. You know, families were starving. When, when the men of the house were conscripted, uh, somebody had to keep the garden going and get the food put away. Uh, I've documented some properties where uh, prominent citizens would be conscripted by the Confederacy they would desert to come back and help their family get their garden in, get their crops in. They'd be conscripted by the Union. They would eventually desert the Union, come back, help get the garden in. And then they'd be conscripted by the, the Confederacy again. Uh, William Washington, uh, uh, shoot, William Washington, um, well, I've, I've drawn a blank on his, on his name, but he was one of those people that uh, went back and forth uh, three times. And they never, could, they never could decide what kind of headstone to give him. <laughs> but the only people that could get headstones at part of the time after the war were the Unionists right. because the Confederates couldn't afford those pretty marble headstones. Yeah, there's a cemetery bordering our place. And up in that cemetery, there is Benjamin Franklin Freeman, and he fought on both sides. Um, and I believe it mentions that on his headstone, but it was plenty of people didn't want to be on either side, but they would get conscripted. And if you couldn't 
pay your way to get out of it, you were stuck. And they called it French leave when they they would desert and go home to uh, help their family with the crops and then come back. That was that was called taking French leave, and uh, it happened quite a lot. Something that we haven't mentioned is um, uh, the Shelton Laurel Massacre. A lot of people say it happened because of the, the salt situation and um, the fact that people from Shelton Laurel came in and took stuff from the salt commissary or uh, depot, whatever it was called, um, and then at the same time broke into Colonel Allen's house. But um, as I found in my research, uh, the bad feelings between Shelton Laurel and Marshall went back uh, a good bit before that. Uh, there was um, <clears throat> Sheriff, um, back when they were um, doing the vote about whether to secede from the Union, that was when the uh, Shelton Laurel men rode in, rode into town to make their vote, and they weren't allowed to vote. And there was a shootout with uh, Sheriff uh, uh, Pleasant, I can't call his name right now, Merrill, shot, he was Merrill. Merrill Pleasant Ramsey or something like that. I think it was Ramsey. Uh, he was up on the second, uh, second floor porch of Colonel Allen's house, and he was shot and fell right off there into the street, and the Laurelites rode out of Marshall. So that was two years before, two, three years before the massacre, but that was kind of, you know, one of the proximate causes and um, that the bad feelings between the, the Laurelites and the Marshall people. Uh, but as, as I have one of the characters in my book say, it goes back to Cain and Abel. It's just, you know, a brother against brother, uh, they will always find something to fall out about. And uh, that's, as, as we've said, that's what goes on today. It continues. Vicki, you use a term that I'd never heard in your book uh, called And the Crows Took Their Eyes. Um, the rebels were called secesh uh, or secesh. Secesh. Like secessionists. Like secessionists. Yeah. Now, where did you come across that term? Uh, somewhere in my research. I did so much reading, um, reading various books, which I talked about the bushwhackers and victims and several of the books that uh, talk about the massacre. And I read um, a lot of newspaper articles and a lot of um, just primary sources and somewhere in there, Research to me is like a compost heap. You just, you know, read everything you can. You listen to everything you can. It all goes in there and it kind of, you know, ferments around and then you come up with it. And by the time I'm writing, it is all just sort of in my mind. And uh, I can't call where I first came up with secesh, but it was it was a fairly common term, mm -hmm. I thought. I liked homegrown Yankees. Uh, I, I thought that was a pretty good one. Yeah, the... Uh, my Uncle Wayne had a saying, if if somebody was being kind of snarly and difficult, he'd say, oh, that sesh is coming out in him. And that's exactly what he was talking about. Yeah. 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 Um, sesh is coming out in him. And I so if the past is prologue, then we're in for a lot of trouble, <laughs> it seems. But I would add that, I, you know, the, the root causes of the Civil War so largely uh, rooted in property and slavery if you 
think about the fact that the majority of the capital wealth in America at that time were the slaves. Yeah, it's it's not like, unlike today where uh, politics is determined by the people with the most money, with the most to lose, who are fighting to keep things the way they are so they can hang on to their money. In the Civil War, it was the slaves. That was a lot of... A lot, if you had 10 slaves, that was a huge amount of money tied up. Uh, and as I say, today it's not not human slaves, but it's, uh, it's your property that people are guarding. It was in the days immediately following this interview that I was rolling around Vicki Lane's statement about wealth in the current day thinking that surely America would never see a situation that would challenge capitalism as we know it. I mean, it is just that ingrained. How could that ever really happen? But then it occurred to me, what if enough people with wealth and power saw democracy itself as a challenge? Could that become grounds for a conflict that could spill outside of politics and become politics by other means? The answer to those questions is outside the scope of this story, and might even be more tangled than the history of the Shelton Laurel Massacre. Perhaps they are not even the right questions, but they are questions worth asking. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and might tell someone you know about it. You can follow the series on podcast platforms everywhere. After that, it helps greatly when you give it a good rating and a review. Spreading awareness by giving this series a top rating and even more so with a review will make all of the topics and artists covered on this series more likely to be found by more people just like you. Southern Songs and Stories is a part of the podcast lineup of both Public Radio WNCW and Osiris Media, with all the Osiris shows available at osirispod.com. You can also hear new episodes of this podcast on Bluegrass Planet Radio at bluegrassplanetradio.com. Thanks to Carol Rifkin for pointing me to much of the music here, to Sean Rubin for converting tapes of the show over home to digital format, and to Corey Askew for producing the radio adaptations of this series on Public Radio WNCW, where we worked with Joshua Mink, who wrote and performed our theme songs. I'm your host and producer, Joe Kendrick, and this is Southern Songs and Stories. with reading a little bit from my book uh, that I think kind of sums up what I came to understand as I uh, researched and wrote about the massacre. Uh, This is Judy Shelton speaking in 1900, long after the massacre. You want to know the way of it, what, what it was, led to the hangings and the whippings, the massacre, and then the killings that went on after that? Folks still getting even, nigh 40 years on? I reckon most would tell you they know who was in the right and who was in the wrong. And I reckon was you to ask five different folks to witness, you'd get five different answers. As for me, I ain't so sure. I've waited most of my life for God Almighty to speak unto me and explain it all. Maybe lean out from a dark thundercloud and roar down a mighty pronouncement. 
or speak in tongues of fire from a bright red maple on the fall, or maybe just whisper in my ear on a still and starry night. I have listened and prayed and listened some more, and here it is a new century, but he ain't spoke to me, not once. Just now, I remember thinking, when they come upon us back in 18 and 63, and I felt the rough bite of the rope around my neck and hearkened to the cruel sound of the whip, the weeping of the women, and the weeping of Mary, babe, Mary Shelton's babe, just now I thought it would be a good time for him to commence. All I know is that war cast a long shadow, both in the coming and the going of it, and we ain't out of that shadow yet, not by a long way. The hunger and the hangings and that terrible day, red blood on white snow, and the black wings of them crows, it don't hardly bear thinking of, but it's every bit of it in my memory yet, and I ain't the only one what remembers. <laughs> ¶¶